All right. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5, please. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. When the wind kicks up and the dusk moves around and everything, am I the only one that has problems breathing? Is it, no? Am I the only one? No? Okay. I'm, I'm not alone then. All right. Well, I don't want us or any of us to have to deal with this, but, well, those of us that have lived here long enough, we just mess with it, you know. Or it messes with us, actually. But we're okay. All right. Daniel chapter 5, the first 16 verses of this particular chapter. As we begin a new chapter now, <coughs> in our last chapter, of course, we, we heard the great proclamation and confession of Nebuchadnezzar to the Most High God, to the God of Abraham, the Isaac and Jacob, and uh, but many years will pass before we come to chapter 5. And a new king exists in Babylon. A man by the name of Belshazzar. And that's the first word and name that we see in verse 1. So let's look at that. Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. And then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines drank in them. I would consider that that is called desecration. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. It is obvious that time has passed since the spiritual conversion of Nebuchadnezzar, since a new name is mentioned as king. And so time has also passed of the rule of Nebuchadnezzar in the kingdom of Babylon. And as we enter into this fifth chapter of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar has been dead for some 23 years now having passed in 562 B.C. after reigning for 43 years. And this again is as historically accurate as it is biblically accurate. The Babylonian kingdom reached its zenith of power under Nebuchadnezzar, but would now begin to fall apart under questionable leadership. Now, it's been recorded by the ancient historian Berossus, that after Nebuchadnezzar's death, the throne was taken by his son, Amel Marduk. He's also known in the scriptures as Evil Merodach. Evil actually is his name, but uh, uh, being pagan, he's probably that evil anyway. 
except for what he does. And we'll see that in just a moment. But the, th- the throne was taken then by this son of Nebuchadnezzar, who only ruled for two years, 562 to 560 B.C., because he was assassinated by his brother-in-law, a man named Neriglasar, for ruling too haphazardly and shamelessly, according to Neriglasar, at least in regards to the Babylonian standards. And this is confirmed to us actually in Scripture. So if you'll turn here, we need this foundation to understand this chapter. So if you'll turn to Second chap- uh, Kings chapter 25, and verses 27 to 30, it gives us a little picture here of, of uh, these characters that are coming into the picture now in Babylon. It says, And it came to pass in the seventh and seven and thirtieth year of the captivity of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, that is, thirty-seven years of the captivity, in the twelfth month on the seventh, seven and twentieth day of the month, which is the twenty-seventh day of the month, that Evel Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, did lift up the head of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, out of prison. And he spake kindly to him, and he set his throne above the throne of the kings that were with him in Babylon, and changed his prison garments, and he did eat bread continually before him all the days of his life. So no longer was Jehoiakim being treated like, um, uh, you know, the scum of the earth there in, in Babylon. And it says, and his allowance was a continual allowance given him of the king, that is the allowance of food, a daily rate for every day, all the days of his life. So, evil Merodach actually does something uh, good to the king Jehoiakim. And uh, but let me give you another passage here because this this just confirms even more the the person of evil Merodach, uh, the son of Nebuchadnezzar. It's Jeremiah 52 verses 31 to 34. It's very similar to what we just read, but I want to read it anyway. And it came to pass in the 7 and 30th year of the captivity of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month and the 5 and 20th day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, lifted up the head of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, brought him him forth out of prison, and spake kindly unto him, and set his throne above the throne of the kings that were with him in Babylon. In other words, there were other kings from other nations in Babylon during that time. So he set him actually above. The kings were, were, were mistreated greatly because they were the leaders of all of their enemy nations. But he had uh, something that uh, caused him to, you know, to, to be kind to, to uh, Jehoiakim. And then it says he changed his prison garments and he did continually bread before him all the days of his life. And for his diet, there was a continual diet given him of the king of Babylon. Every day a portion until the day of his death, all the days of his life. And, and I mentioned this. Because to some extent this is also prophetic, uh, or at least it's kind of a picture of what is yet to come. Because Israel, Judah and Israel together, but Israel as a whole, would suffer and did suffer great destruction. And that was prophesied of the Lord that as, as long as his people would disobey him and rebel against him, they would be to some extent as a nation destroyed. But there would always be a restoration. And this is a picture, a little bit of a picture of a restoration before they are finally brought back to the land. So, 
it's just to show that God does not just destroy them completely, but actually gives a little hint, a little hint of a, of a, a restoring that takes place. And how God is taking care of His people in spite of their disobedience. So that, that's just something to think about. So now this Neriglossar ruled for four years. He ruled from 560 to 556 B.C. until he died a natural death. Now he's mentioned in Scripture as well. He's mentioned as Nergalshareser. I'm not making these names up, folks. I mean, as a matter of fact, let's look at it. Jeremiah 39, verse 3. It says, And all the princes of the king of Babylon came in and sat in the middle gate, even Nergalshareser. You see? I wasn't faking you out. And look at this. Some Garnebo, Sarsechim, Rab Saris, Nergal Araser, Rab Mag, with all the residue of the princes of the king of Babylon, and we're not going to mess with those names anymore, I don't think. But we do have a couple more names down in verse 13. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, sent, and Nebuchadnezzar, Rab Saris, and Nergal Shareser. There's the name again. That's the king that uh, uh, took over after evil Merodach. Rab Mag and all the king of Babylon's princes. Okay. Well, that's just to show you he's in the scriptures. He's mentioned there. So after Neriglasar, which is an easier name to say than this one, Neriglasar's death, he was succeeded by his son. His son's name is Labashi Marduk, also known as Laborosuar Shod. <laughs> I'm not making this up, but anyway, I'm not going to show you that anymore. That's it. No more funny names. Who was his only child? Uh, the only child of Neriglasar, Labish Marduk, we'll call him. Uh, and he said to have been of diminished, he was, it was his only son, and of diminished mental capacity. That's historic. That's what he was told. You know, they, were, they said, this guy's a little bit, you know, less in the, in the mental capacity. So this son, who is now the king, he ruled only for nine months. Other accounts say two months. But he ruled and then he was beaten to death by a gang of conspirators who eventually appointed a successor to the throne, one of the gang whose name was Nabonidus. Nabonidus ruled the kingdom of Babylon for 17 years and in that time attempted to restore some of their pagan worship. Now you have to remember that many, many years before, Nebuchadnezzar had met the God of Israel, had met the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had met the God who is the Most High God, the only true God. <coughs> and so, obviously, in a kingdom where the king is no longer pagan in the sense of his type of worship, it doesn't seem like we know that there was any kind of disruption to the pagan worship, but quite possibly there were changes made. So there was this attempt then to restore completely to this pagan worship that they had had before, worship that may have been curtailed again due to Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. But this, uh, this king, Nabonidus, he spent 10 of his 17 years as king away from Babylon. He didn't even rule in Babylon. He spent 10 of 17 years in Arabia. As king of Babylon, he had actually conquered some of the Middle East, Edom, and Arabia. He liked the weather. He liked it where he was there, uh, while he was there, so he decided to stay for a while. 
And he kind of kind of ruled from there, but he, but he set a co-regent in his place in Babylon. And that would be his eldest son, Belshazzar, who began his reign in Babylon around 553 B.C. Now, it was considered for many years by historians and archaeologists that Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon, not Belshazzar. So now there's this discrepancy. Now we would say, well, the Bible says it's Belshazzar. But history and archaeology says it's Nabonidus. Is the Bible wrong? The discrepancy was cleared up when evidence was uncovered by archaeologists in 1881. Because in 1881, they found a clay cuneiform uh, a clay, uh, it was actually a cylinder that they wrote their history and, and their, their, their journals of what was going on in, in the land. They were called cylinders. This one in particular was called Nabonidus cylinder. The cylinder of Nabonidus. A copy of which is today in the British Museum in London. The Babylonian records, or the, the Babylonian records on this cylinder, it, it, it records that Belshazzar, or Belshazzar, became co-regent in the third year of Nabonidus' reign, and he continued in that capacity until the fall of Babylon in 553 B.C. Archaeology raised up this find so that we can see that the Bible was always right to begin with. So with this background, our study in chapter 5 begins. One other important note to add is that at the onset of this chapter, the city of Babylon had been under siege by the Medes and the Persians for several months. Do you remember the statue that uh, was in the dream of uh, Nebuchadnezzar? The top part of the statue was the head and, and the shoulders. was That was, that was the uh, gold, the gold... Uh, was a representative of Babylon. But then the chest of silver, that would be representative then of the next world power, which was the Medes and the Persians. Today, where is Persia? It's in Iran. Does Iran play a role today in, in, in the uh, leading up to biblical prophecy? It, there's a major role that Persia plays in the scriptures and Iran, Iran today in, in history, or I should say in, in current events. So, they were being under siege already. In other words, the Medes and the Persians had started to, had started to conquer places where Babylon had already conquered. But their aim was to go and conquer Babylon itself. The Medes had already captured the surrounding towns and villages and were now preparing the capture of the city of Babylon. So they were all surrounding them, but the walls of Babylon, if you've ever heard of any uh, of, of all of the great architecture of, of Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar had, had, had raised up, uh, they were very proud of it. The city of Babylon itself, and I'll talk about it in just a moment, uh, was, was quite a was quite a city to be protected in for a time. 
It's also thought that Nabonidus had already come back. Of course, he was 10 of 17 years away, but now he's come back. And he led a, a certain fight against the Medes and the Persians. And it is believed that during this time of chapter 5, Nabonidus had been captured by the Medes and the Persians. So, do you understand where we are here? There, there's war outside. Their king is captured, possibly. But inside, the co-regent, Belshazzar, is doing what? He's partying. Look at verse 1 again. Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Now you would think that, uh, you know, with your father possibly out there captured, <laughs> you, you want to go and get, get him, uh, take care of him. Instead, they're inside the walls of this city and they're having a party, a drinking party actually. And then it tells us that Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden, sil golden and silver vessels, which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. In other words, bring those things we brought from Jerusalem. Let's, let's use those to, you know, drink our wine. Let, let's, let's mock that king. Not many years before. His grandfather Nebuchadnezzar had captured those vessels. But then Nebuchadnezzar was given this rude awakening that the God of Israel is not to be mocked. So some time has passed, but lessons were not learned. So they drank out of those vessels and then it tells us, that they brought the golden vessels, that they were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. The king and his princes, his wives, his concubines drank them. And they drank wine, and they praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. Let's go back to the kind of worship we used to have before. So this type of drunken feast was not uncommon. And it is quite possible that this party was thrown to give assurance to the leaders that they were safe within the walls of Babylon. Now keep in mind that the walls of the city were 350 feet high. That's pretty high. 350 feet high. They were 80 feet thick. The walls were 80 feet thick. And they extended some 35 feet below ground. So it was a tremendous uh, uh, foundation for this city. They had some 250 towers on these walls that extended another 100 feet in the air. The towers themselves could be seen from miles and miles away. They had the Euphrates River running through the city which supplied them with water and they had enough food to last them 20 years without ever opening the gates of the city. And so this feast was thrown to encourage his people and to show the armies of the Medo-Persians how foolish they were in trying to take this city of Babylon. The wine that flowed at this party was not just to enjoy the taste of good wine. The word that is used for tasted in our text implies that they were also enjoying the inebriating effects that the wine produced in them. 
They were really liking the buzz that they had. And in other words, they were drunk and they drunk some more. Or they drank some more. They drank some more and they got drunk some more. And they would soon, very soon, be awakened out of their drunken stupor. Very soon. It is as Proverb 20 verse 1 tells us, wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. Literally, strong drink is a noisy brawler. A noisy brawler. You ever heard someone that just has been overtaken by so much alcohol, so much liquor that uh, they just get loud and they get feisty, sometimes even, even very uh, aggressive? It says that whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Not wise. Now, not only did Belshazzar or Belshazzar mock the power of the Medo-Persian army with this party, but he also mocked the true and living God. He mocked the God of Daniel. He mocked the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Azariah, and their buddy. Would be called Abednego. I forgot his first name. I'll get it to him. Senior moment. But some 70 years earlier, Nebuchadnezzar took some of the temple articles and brought them back to Babylon with him. These vessels were stored. They were displayed as the spoils of their victory. But now we see Belshazzar take them out of the storage and use these vessels of the living God to toast their gods with. That's pretty mocking, isn't it? And it fits with Proverbs 20. Wine is a mocker. Causes you to mock. The king would soon learn an ominous lesson. You know what that lesson was? Hebrews 10 verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing. Please understand that the fall of this nation was only hours away. And yet they were partying like there was no tomorrow. And for them, they re- uh, you know, there really wasn't a tomorrow. They were totally blinded to the judgment that was coming. The city was caught off guard and would be caught off guard soon. You know, as I look at our nation today, it is not hard to see some parallels. People are just doing whatever they want. Many of them mocking God. God is mocked every day on the internet. God, God is mocked every day 
on TV. Every day. God is mocked every day at the movies. And yet people aren't aware that judgment is coming. And yet some, even if they became aware, they would probably say, let it come. We don't care. We want to live the way we want to live. We want to do the things we want to do. If we become our own gods, there's a God enough to worship. As believers in Jesus Christ, we need ourselves to awaken out of our own stupor sometimes. And see the times of the signs and the signs of the times as they are. As a reminder that Jesus is very serious about having said, I'm coming again. We need to realize how serious Jesus was when he said that in the last days, deception would be running amok as it is today. How many people are being deceived today into thinking that everything's cool? Even in the church, we have, we have this movement called the emerging church movement. They're emerging, but they're really submerging. They're submerging and going under because they don't care about what the Word of God says. They really don't. They've done everything they can to change what the Word of God says. They hold to understandings that we ourselves cannot understand because we hold to what the Scriptures say, and that is our standard of rule and practice in our lives. But we're mocked because we believe in, in marriage that belongs to just men and, to a man and a woman. We're mocked about it from the church. You know, the world does it enough. But when the people in, people in churches do it, to say that we're dinosaurs, old-fashioned, we need to get up with the times. Last time I checked, the Scripture says, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Last time I checked throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, last time I checked, it tells us that God never changes. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that we love. That's, that's the God that saved us. What kind of appreciation is it if we decide that we want to tell the Lord, well, Lord, you know, thanks for saving us, but you know what? Uh, we really don't like this. Well, I see here in your word. You got to be up with the times, Lord. Besides, didn't you make these people that way? Listen, we have a great banquet ahead of us with Jesus, don't we? The marriage supper of the Lamb. I'm excited about that. I want people to go and be there with Jesus. Jesus says, that, as a matter of fact, the Scriptures tell us Jesus is going to serve us. That's going to be a blessing. 
But now, today, there's work to be done. We're told time and again, but I just want to give you just a, a little example of what the Scriptures tell us on a daily basis to focus our attention upon as we wait for the day of Jesus Christ to come. We're told in Ephesians 5, verse 10, as a matter of fact, it says, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. I mean, I know it's a kind of an awkward place to start, but what Paul has been talking about is, is having come out of darkness into, into light, and we are people of light. That is why he says in verse 11, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. We are here tonight, though we're sitting all over the place in a big room, but here we are all together tonight, and we're having fellowship with the Lord, right? I mean, you know, it, it takes us a little bit of time to get over to the other side of the, of the building here to say hello to somebody, but, but, but we're still here to have fellowship. And you know, when we leave, we're going to say hello, shake hands, we're going to hug people, we're going to oh, tell them, God bless you, we're going to pray for you, some people are going to pray with you, you're going to go get your kids, we're going to run into people. Listen, we're having fellowship. But too often we're having fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. And what does that do to us? It puts us back in darkness. It doesn't keep us in the light. Listen to what, he, what Paul says in verse 12. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. Where are things done in secret? They're done in the darkness. And what business do we have going to those dark places? You know, I, 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 at the risk of sounding legalistic, I don't care, but at the risk of sounding legalistic, you guys know I'm not, but at the risk of sounding legalistic, I'm going to tell you, none of us have any business going to the movie Fifty Shades of Grey. In fact, none of us have any business reading the stupid book. I heard something very important, very interesting today. Of all of the books that have been that uh, top sellers since 2004, that's what, 10, almost 11 years? Fifty Shades of Grey is at the top of the list, the, the biggest selling book in 10 years. And the two sequels are in the top, uh, the top 10 of the list. What's interesting, too, is that the shack is the second most purchased book. And I can tell you this, and we've said it before, that you know, many Christians bought the shack even in Christian bookstores. But it is just one big heretical book where it does not speak of God in the right way. It does not portray Him properly. In fact, the book is quite new age in its root, in its foundation, and in its message. But you see, that's the world. Verse 13, Paul says, But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever uh, doth make manifest is light. Light reveals the light of the glory of God revealed the sin of our life until the only thing we could do was go to the Lord for mercy. 
Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that you walk circumspectly, that you walk carefully, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Redeeming the time, getting back the time, buying back the time, making the most of the time that God has given us because the days are evil. Make the most of every opportunity. Make the most of every opportunity for for Jesus Christ in the light in which God has placed us now. To strengthen strengthen that understanding, Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14 says, And that knowing the time, do we know the time? That now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. We are closer now to the day of our salvation when Jesus Christ comes. He says, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. There it is again. Darkness and light. Darkness and light. We've gotten to the point in our country today, we've gotten to, you know, and and it's been around a long time. I'm not saying it's, it's brand new. It's not brand new. It's the old lie just packaged in so many different ways for thousands and thousands of years. But we've gotten into this, this thinking that, you know, we, we, we look for ambiance. We look for, you know, some atmosphere. You know, we, we like to go into places that are just, just dark enough, and, but, but enough light, you know, so we can see our, you know, we don't, you know, uh, 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 put our toe in, into a table or a chair or something or hurt ourselves. We just need enough light to get to where we're going so we can stay in the darkness. And some of us used to play in nightclubs and we used to do all kinds of stuff. You know, we like the darkness. But then so do cucarachas. Because the moment you turn on the light, man, you start to scatter. And there were enough times when I was playing in nightclubs at 2 o'clock in the morning when they needed to get people out of there. They turned on the light and everybody would, ah, and they would scramble right out the door. Because most of the time they were living in sin. You understand? Let us walk honestly. You see, as Christians, you're wondering, how come we're going through this? Because we have to check our hearts. We have to check our hearts every day as Christians, as believers in Jesus. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envy, but put, it, put you on the Lord Jesus Christ and make, no, uh, make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Put on the Lord like a garment. Put on Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to fulfill that lust of the flesh. And I can tell you, we, we, we fight this battle every day. That's why every day we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Every day we need to be in the Word of God. Every day we need to be on our knees. Every day we need to be trusting in the Lord to give us what we need to make it through this day knowing that we're going to make it victoriously because of Jesus Christ. Because we stay in the light of the glory of Christ, not because we stay in the darkness of the world. Okay, getting back to our text, because we're in Daniel tonight, okay? So getting back to our text, the banquet room. The banquet room where all of this feasting was going on. 
may have already been found by archaeologists. A number of years ago, these archaeologists uncovered a room some 56 feet wide and 173 feet long. That's a pretty good sized room. And midway in this long hall, along the wall, there was a niche. And it was discovered uh, there, right in the middle of this wall. And, and it is considered that that is where the king may have sat. You know, usually in the middle of everything so we can see everything that was going on. And the wall behind him was made of plaster, making it an ideal place for what takes place next. Shall we look at our text in verse 5? It says, in the same hour. Now remember, they're in this place just drinking up a storm and using the vessels of the temple of God from Jerusalem. They're using those to drink and get even more plastered, plastered as it were. You wonder where the word plaster comes from. Uh, They were plastered themselves probably against the wall. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand. Now we don't know how big this is yet. But fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote the finger. And then the king's countenance was changed You think? The king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against another. You can't see it behind this pulpit, but I'm really moving my knees, you know. I wonder if, if for, for even a moment that, that this this king was probably going, man, I, I really drank the wrong thing right there. I shouldn't have mixed that with this and blah, 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 you know, because I'm seeing things. But fear had set in because he saw what he saw and what he saw was real. The king cried aloud. To bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans and the soothsayers. And the king spoke and, and said to the wise men of Babylon, Whosoever shall read this writing. Does this sound familiar? Yeah. Whosoever shall read this writing and show me the interpretation thereof shall be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And then came in all the king's wise men. But you know, all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't save Belshazzar again. But they could not read the writing nor make known to the king the interpretation thereof. And then was King Belshazzar greatly troubled and his countenance was changed in him and his lords were astonished. During this great feast, trouble comes to Belshazzar in the form of a hand which writes on the wall right next to his throne. I guess you, you know that then where this expression comes about reading the writing on the wall. This is where it comes from. Whatever fun they had been having 
ended abruptly as the king's countenance turned from what may have been a a rosy red countenance, a rosy red cheeks, to an ashen white face, his knees knocking together with fear. Don't forget that he began the chapter as a fearless king. And I would put fearless in quotation marks. He he began the chapter as a fearless king, throwing a party in defiance of the enemy that was laying siege against him and his kingdom, not to mention desecrating the vessels of the Jerusalem temple, which in fact were desecrating the vessels that were to be used to offer sacrifices to the one true God. This fearless king was now shaking in his boots or sandals or whatever he had on his feet. With that, a, a cry went out to bring all the wise men in Babylon to interpret this writing, but, the ki- but to the king's dismay, they couldn't do it. They probably didn't know Hebrew. Belshazzar knew he was in for trouble. And he knew he was in trouble. But he really didn't know how much trouble. Have you ever been there? You know you're kind of in trouble, but you don't really know how much trouble you're in. I, I think maybe we've all been there. Maybe when we were in school one time, they said, you got to go to the principal's office. And you're thinking, well, okay, well, I, I, I'm in trouble, but I don't know how much trouble I'm in. That's usually the thought. I don't know how much trouble I'm in. How much greater when you mess around with the things of God or you mess around with God himself as if he doesn't exist. What a rude awakening will come. So, as we continue, verse 10, it says, Now the queen, the queen possibly his mother, but more than likely his grandmother, the wife of Nebuchadnezzar, by reason of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet house. In other words, she was in her room, wherever that was in the, in the palace, but she heard a lot of commotion, a lot of noise, a lot of stuff was going on. And then, of course, after this hand began to write on this wall and everybody was just wondering what's going on and where, you know, all the wise men were coming in and which were not great wise men, but they were, that's what they were called. Anyway, all this commotion and so she comes into the banquet house and the queen spake and said, O king, live forever. Now, that's what you always said to the king. Let not thy thoughts trouble thee, nor let thy countenance be changed. When she understood what was going on. There is a man in thy kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And that sounds a lot like the words of Nebuchadnezzar. So this is one reason why it's thought that this is his grandmother and not his mother. Because she would have known very clearly about Daniel. There is a man in thy kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of thy father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods was found in him whom the king Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, the king, by the way, thy father, the reason is because in their language they didn't have a word for grandfather. 
So remember, Abraham, uh, 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 Isaac, the son of Abraham, Jacob, the son of Abraham. So that, uh, you know, it's the way they talked then. So that's how you have to understand that. From the king Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, the king, I say, thy father made master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. In other words, he made Daniel that, the master of the magicians and all. For as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding, interpreting of dreams and showing of hard sentences and dissolving of doubts were found in the same Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. Have you ever wondered why Daniel is always the last one to be called? I think we talked about this last week because remember last week, Daniel was the last one called. <laughs> so the queen in hearing, again, all this turmoil going on responded to the trouble. But she knew and had seen the true God's transforming power in Nebuchadnezzar. She saw how God spoke through Daniel and even after some 23 years since her husband died, she still spoke favorably of Daniel and recognized that the Spirit of God was upon him. By this time, Daniel is in his 80s and the Lord is still using him. None of us are ever too old to be used of God. For that matter, we're never too young either. The Lord is always looking for people that He can work through. For his glory. The eyes of the Lord, it tells us in, in the scriptures, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth to find hearts that are loyal to him. We're told in Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, Likewise reckon you yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in, its lu- in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your instrument, your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves, look at this, yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. We are to make ourselves completely and totally available unto the Lord. As a matter of fact, Paul later on in Romans 12 says, says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. We have to present ourselves to God as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. It is your reasonable service. The only thing that is reasonable for us us to do is to lay ourselves down fully and completely available to the Lord for whatever He would want us to do. But, verse 2 tells us, and be not conformed to this world. Once again, don't be conformed to the world. Don't be conformed to the standards of the world. Don't be conformed to the, to the lusts of the world. Don't be conformed to the temptations of the world. Don't be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Present yourselves. It really isn't a matter of saying, you know, somebody else can go do it. 
If we are truly open to the Holy Spirit of God, if we are truly open to the Word of God and to what we know to be that communication that we're to have in prayer with the Lord and the Lord speaks to our hearts, you know what we need to listen? We need to listen and then we need to act. You know, we have a a book in the Scriptures called the Book of Acts. It's not the book of thinking. It's not the book of wondering. The book of maybes. It's not called the book of wannabes. It's not the book of might bees. The book of Acts. The Acts of the Apostles. And you've got to remember that at the end of the book of Acts, there's no amen because it's still going on. It's still going on today. We're living in Acts 29. You know what that is? That's our chapter. The apostles ended in Acts chapter 28, but we go on. What about our Acts? It's not the book of wishful thinking. It's a book of service unto God. So as I said, finally, Daniel at last. Daniel at last. (laughs) Go get Daniel again. Verse 13, Then was Daniel brought in before the king, and the king spake and said unto Daniel, Art thou that Daniel, which are of the children of the captivity of Judah, whom the king my father brought out of Jewry, which which actually is brought out of Judah? That's, That's one of the things I don't quite like is the use of that word because really it's Yahud which is Judah so anyway uh, but anyway we go on I have even heard of the of thee that the spirit of the gods is in thee well yeah he just heard it from his grandmother I've heard of you that the spirit of God is in thee or the spirit of the gods here but it's really the spirit of God remember from last week and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in thee. And now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known unto me the interpretation thereof. But they could not show the interpretation of the thing. They, they couldn't give, give me an answer as to what this writing is. And I have heard of thee that thou canst make interpretations and dissolve doubts. Now, If thou canst read the writing and make known to me the interpretation thereof, thou shalt be clothed with scarlet. I mean, you know, in other words, it's more more like a purple color, like the the, the color of royalty. You shall be clothed with scarlet, have a chain of gold about thy neck, and, and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So it seems that Belshazzar's memory has been jarred a bit. By the events that took place, and it's verifying if this was the Daniel who was of the captives of Judah. Remember, he's about 80 years old, or he's, he's in his 80s. And once, once that's established, the king tells Daniel that if he can read the handwriting on the wall, that he will be rewarded. He'll be clothed in, in, the, in, in the color of royalty. He'll be given a gold chain around his neck, one of the highest honors actually given in Babylon. Remember how gold was so important to Nebuchadnezzar. But lastly, he would become the third ruler of Babylon, literally the ruler of a third of Babylon. The ruler of a third of Babylon. Now why is that significant? Well, <laughs> with the information that we looked at about Nabonidus, or Nabonidus I should say, and Belshazzar, both ruling as king, remember, they're the co-regents, it would make sense then that Daniel could not be second in command, but would have to be third in command. 
So it is amazing the details that the Lord gives us in His Word to confirm His Word to us and show us that He is indeed the true and the living God. Just a simple thing like that. You'll be third ruler. You'll be a ruler of the third of the kingdom. Because there's two of us already. That makes sense. Because the Word of God is rational, it is reasonable, but it is reliable, and it is right. So let's conclude with this because we don't have enough time to actually go into the rest. The rest is yet to come. It's the rest of the story. It's the big moment here for Belshazzar. But it's interesting that, that people could see that the writing was on the wall and it made them fearful. But they didn't know what it all meant or what to do about it. It seems that we are in that position now, I say, as, as, as a society and as a culture. It seems that there's a tremendous amount of fear and anxiety over the collapsing financial markets. There's a lot of fear over job security today. <clears throat> there, are even fear, there are even fears over CO2 emissions and global warming, or what's it called now? Climate change. I heard from someone not long ago, just this past week, that, you know, climate change is a worse fear than terrorism. Did you know that? I didn't know that. It would seem to me that uh, terrorism has really put a lot of fear in people. The terrorism of our time seems to be working pretty well. There's a lot of fear of a group called ISIS or ISIL or IS. And there's even still an Al-Qaeda Though we were told not long ago Al-Qaeda was defeated. Really? I don't see it defeated. There's a lot of internet buzz that they're still around. There's a lot of news uh, that uh, says that there's Al-Qaeda cells all over the world popping up. and enveloping actually even nations. The fear. So what is needed? What is needed is a Daniel who can not only see the writing on the wall, but also can interpret the signs for the people. Bible-believing Christians should be the Daniels of our time. We need to be like the sons of Issachar. Remember the sons of Issachar mentioned in 1 Chronicles 12, verse 32. I'll close with this. And of the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, do we have an understanding of the times to know what God's people ought to do? I know that the Lord has his hand upon Israel. I know that the Lord is going to take them and protect them. He's going to teach them and he's still going to have to deal with them about their sin. But God has promised 
their restoration and their salvation. God has promised it. And the, the best evidence that God is going to do what He says is seeing Israel today in the small piece of land called Israel. Called Eretz Israel, which is the state of Israel. Or the land of Israel. Eretz Israel. And the fact of the matter is, it's fulfilled prophecy. But it just depends how you look at, at the scriptures. Because if you think that all prophecy has already been fulfilled, then the Israel in the land is not the Israel that, you, that a person would believe is, is truly Israel. But there are too many signs. There are too many fulfilled prophecies to have them in the land like it is today. And for those that were there not long ago with us, it, I tell you, <laughs> it's convincing. God said that he was going to cause the land to bloom, and he did. We are living in times where we need to understand what's going on. So the reason we're in the book of Daniel and we're heading towards these great prophecies, we're still even finding here in chapter 5 some basis, some little hints of prophecy. Back in the book of Revelation, not long ago, I was uh, when we were studying the uh, chapters dealing with Mystery Babylon, the Great, the Mother of Harlots, when we were trying to identify who that was, I made the suggestion that Mystery Babylon is, is the kingdoms of Arabia, United Arab Emirates, that, that whole Arabian Peninsula area, those, those particular groups. I made the suggestion to think carefully that the possibility is that these are, in fact, you know, what makes up this mystery Babylon because of all of the clues given to us in the verses around it. But how interesting that Nabonidus, Nabonidus, the, the, the father of Belshazzar, finds himself for a time in Arabia. Just something to think about. Just something to think about. Because there's so much that foretells, there's so many things that kind of happen to point us to what's going to take place in, a, in the fullest sense when, when prophecy is fulfilled. So just another little thing, you know, another little detail. Could be, could be, or might not be, but the point is God is very accurate about what he teaches us. We were a little fuzzy about 40 years ago when we were looking at Rome and we were looking at the European nations. You look at Europe today that's being overrun by Islam in a lot of ways. So again, things for us to consider. And things for us to pray about in our own nation. We need to pray as Second Chronicles 7.14 teaches us, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. So let's remember our responsibility to pray, not only for the peace of Jerusalem, let's pray for our nation as well.
Let's do it.